Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So in a climate of change and uncertainty, the ability to personally adapt and get your team to adapt is critical to success. And I'm going to imagine most of you know that. But adapting ultimately means that we're learning and we're going to learn a new way. And in fact, getting out of your comfort zone, the title of this show, is really ultimately about learning, learning a new way to lead, in effect. Now, we often say that the ability to learn is a core competency. And I know also that curiosity is becoming critical, as we've discussed on this show many times, and I've written about with one of my guests for today as well, the power of that gentle curiosity, both in leading people and in approaching your work. But today, I want to focus on learning, specifically on learning. What makes for a great learning culture? What works? What doesn't? How do you develop this company in yourself and in your team? And we're also going to spend a little bit of time saying, how do you know where you are in this whole learning journey? So my guest today is Mike Malafakis, who is the CEO and Associate Vice Dean at the Executive Education um, School Institute at Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. That's for those of you who don't know, the Oresti Institute, and I hope I have pronounced that correctly. I will say that um, University of Pennsylvania attracts 13,000 executives from around the world every year. And Mike is responsible for interacting with those executives and making sure they have a great learning experience. Now, more importantly, Mike is a dedicated lifelong worker, and he's worked with some of the world's leading executive education providers, starting with the University of Michigan and then in Latin America, returning to the U.S. with the Chicago Booth School and with Columbia and then now currently at Wharton. His passion for designing and delivering learning programs that have a positive impact started with his early work in microenterprise development in Central America and Peru with CARE, the World Bank, and the Catholic Relief Services. So, and I should say about Mike, curiosity is an essential driver that's always asked him to question, gotten him to question the status quo and develop better ways of designing and delivering learning programs. So, Mike, with that, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. And um, thanks for inviting me to the show and look forward to talking with a good friend and former colleague, Steve Newman, in the second half. And let me just say, I don't know when you started with Out of the Comfort Zone, but you could not have picked a better title for 2020 than this show. I mean, we have been out of the comfort zone for a long time in this year. So happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And for if anybody's just listening for the first time, I should say this show has been on for over five years. In fact, we're closing in on our sixth year, which is kind of exciting. But it's really my belief that great leadership happens when you learn to get out of your comfort zone of expertise. That's the comfort zone that gives you confidence, but it's breaking out of that and doing things in a different way, in a new way, in a spanning way, in my language. That really is what drives for catapulting your career and your leadership. So out of the comfort zone has been, you know, it's been my phrase for a long time. 
So yes, it has been a year of exercising it though, for sure, for everybody. All right. So Mike, why are you so passionate about learning? Sort of what, what drives your interest here? You know, Wanda, it, it, it's interesting because I don't reflect often on this, but I, if, if asked that question, I have to go back to my childhood. Um, I'm dyslexic. And those of you, I think everybody knows about dyslexia these days, but it's, it's a learning disability. And I was notorious for being about the worst speller in all of my classes behind in reading. Um, and um, my last name, my good Greek last name, I was the last kid to learn how to write their last name in elementary school. Um, not a great start to formal education at all. But um, the interesting thing about dyslexia is while it is more challenging, it slows you down in many ways when it comes to certainly rote memorization, when it comes to reading, writing. I think like perhaps a blind person who has to hone their ability to hear better, you start to hone other abilities to compensate for that lack of, you know, something that's highly rewarded in learning. Um, so perhaps connecting the dots, conceptual thinking and other ways of thinking are ways to overcome that disability of being a horrible speller. Thank God for spell check in the early days I didn't have it and it was painful. Um, but it was also just, you, you, you know, part of that struggle of spending probably five times longer to write something than a typical kid always having to go to the dictionary several years of tutors and things like that just gave me appreciation that learning doesn't come naturally and all of us have different abilities, but many of us don't just pick it up easily. So I, I think that's my, my basic curiosity in learning. Thank you. All right. You're reminding me um, once again of all the different of all ways in which we are different as human beings and our preference for people who think like we think, re, uh, learn the way we learn, talk the way we start. So it's just a reminder of this is yet one more. Um, and I know too, an awful lot of the executives that I work with don't necessarily, their style of learning is not the classic learning. They like to get their hands in and when they get their hands on it and they experiment with it and they test it and can kick the tires and see how far it can go, that's when they actually really learn. So you're reminding me how much differences we have in our learning styles. All right. So I want to talk about this whole notion of creating a learning culture, why it matters and how it creates it. So do you agree with my opening statement that learning is a core competency today? And if so, why? And if not, why not? No question. Um, I would hope that all of us can agree about that these days because this year, 2020 has proven beyond a doubt. You know, it's been, what, 20 years or so since the phrase VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, was coined by the U.S. military. And, you know, probably the last decade or so that it's really been infused among corporate leadership as describing the world that we live in. Um, in those of us who are working in the, you know, 80s and 90s, remember a more stable time where a lot of predictions held sway for the next five years. And you could do the five, I'm not talking about the Soviet five-year plan, but corporate planning then three, five years out. Um, 2020 blew up every last, you know, facade of that being the way that the world works. Um, the, the combination of technological innovation of 
regulatory changes or falling behind the technology have made it that it's so far more complex than we could we could imagine that learning is the core competency for the 21st century and our ability to adjust the way we respond and proactively plan forward is all based on learning. So yeah, I think it's critical. All right. So you're reminding me two phrases, one that has been attributed to a number of people. I'm not going to claim which one it is, but the statement is planning is everything. Plans are worthless. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this 2020 has captured that, how just how worthless plans can actually be. Um, But the exercise of planning can be good. And the second one is um, the interview I did with Alexandra Levitt about the future of work, particularly around digitalization. And she says, in the last six months, we have made six years of progress on digitalization. Things that were there, we'd been talking about, we would eventually get around to doing as corporations have happened in six months, six years of progress in six months. And that tells you something about the acceleration and the pace. And I agree with you, learning is absolutely, if you can't learn in that one, you're going to get left behind really badly. All right. So how do we get better at learning? Um, I think this is really, once again, going to your title of out of the comfort zone um, is, is, is critical. And, and I'd like to quote David Peterson, who worked for years in Google as a head coach at Google, has an amazing quote, there's no learning in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the learning zone. And again, going back to what I said about my dyslexia as a kid, one thing I realized is that learning doesn't necessarily come even. Aspects of learning come naturally to all of us as, again, we all have different learning styles. But to really embrace learning, you have to force yourself to get uncomfortable. Um, uh, The guest who's going to join us at the second half of our our show, Steve Newman, um, I first got to know him as a client and then as a collaborator. And one thing I loved about Steve is that as a client, he actually told us, I don't want to get a perfect 5-0 in our five-point ranking system, that if we land a perfect 5-0, that means we haven't pushed them far enough. Whereas everybody else was celebrating, we want the perfect score. Steve had the insight to understand that we made it too easy for people if we land a perfect 5-0. So I, I, I just embrace that, I think, essence of grappling with hard facts, grappling with diverging points of view, grappling with confusing information and complexity is not easy. And by, by nature, it should push us out of the comfort zone. It's, it's, it's pulling the all-nighter to prepare something for your company or when you were in school to do the work at school. So yes, I, I think you need that as the sort of fundamental way to drive learning is get out of comfort. All right. That's a challenge because most of us get a little afraid and a little defensive when we're out of the comfort zone. So figuring out how to do that and embrace it and be okay with that discomfort is important. Um, I did um, recently a lovely program with um, Amy Stendler. She's been a guest here. And she has runs this great program called Through Your Own Lens, which is basically getting people to see what's around them with an totally empty mind, open mind, she would say, as a way of thinking about the problems that you're facing in a slightly different way. And she uses the photographs as metaphors. 
And we've just been running this through with a team. And I have to tell you, talking about A, getting people out of the comfort zone because they thought they were just taking a lovely photo and we're challenging them about why, you know, this or that or something or the symbolism of this or that and did they think about it and so on. It's really interesting. But it's broadening that point of view, just seeing the world in a different way. Just think what we're talking about here. I have to, you said diverging points of view that um, I believe great leadership is about being able to hold polar opposites in balance. So I'm both looking at the future, I'm looking at the short term here and now. I'm pushing people hard, I'm being gentle with them. I'm prospecting for the future, I'm retreating, going back to safety zone. Um, It's just a continual set of polar opposites. So what do you see? I want to talk about the companies that you see. You've seen lots and lots and lots of organizations come through executive education programs. What do you see companies do that helps drive this culture of learning? Give me some examples. Yeah, I, I think the, the key is, first starting with what you say, culture is key to this. And, you know, the, the saying that, that culture eats strategy for lunch um, is, is, is critical. And I think that leads back to the leadership of the company. And there's two types of company leadership when it comes to learning. I think by now, almost all CEOs, chairmans, um, they, they, they do talk the talk about we need to become a learning organization. But walking the talk is really challenging. And, and I'm, I'm reflecting on like an example of how you can do this very well. Um, I don't think I should name the company, but a very large European headquartered um, multinational, 300,000 employees across the globe, um, thinking about kicking off a program with the top um, 60 people of the company, including all the members of the executive committee. The brand new um, CEO of the company had the the best opening he could have had. And this is after replacing a chairman who was widely successful, who had been at the helm for over a decade. So there was a lot of pressure on this new CEO. And the humility that he started this talk out, which was a week-long engagement um, that was a multi-modular program that, that eventually ended up with projects, was to talk about his failures during his first six months as CEO. And I remember him honing in on the first time he had the field um, corporate earnings report and the questions and that fine line and balance of how truthful to be and how much, you know, transparency you have. And he basically opened up and gave permission to everybody in that room by acknowledging a few of his own weaknesses and a few of his own stumbles in this brand new position to say, it's okay. And, you know, going back to the culture of learning, that culture of experimentation where you understand that it's okay to experiment, it's okay to have failure, um, and and obviously the degrees of failure, but it's part of the learning process. And we've given a lot of lip service to this, I think many companies have, without actually embedding that in their culture. So I think leadership is key in culture. Then some ideas for sort of reinforcing this. I'll never forget my first time in Google headquarters um, and walking into the men's room. And I saw in front of every stall and in front of every place where we go, Python quiz that's posted in 
paper. You know, the digital company Google is doing this. And I asked one of, one of the executives there and he said, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's our weekly sort of mind-bending quiz that we have a week. We know during the course of a week, we're all going to go to the restroom a few times a week. We, we, can, we can focus on this quiz. We can start to work it out in our free time. And then, you know, at the end of the week, those who get who break the code get recognition. And I love that little example because that's not leadership. That's just embedding it into the culture, this sense of curiosity, of problem solving. It's a puzzle. It's a riddle. We're all in this together. And yeah, there are going to be sort of perennial leaderboards on this, but every once in a while, somebody's going to break the code out of nowhere. So, so, so you know, that's another example of creativity fueling a learning culture. And I think that's key. So leadership, creativity, fueling, fueling a learning culture. And one other thing, Wanda, I think is really critical. I've seen companies make this um, mistake before is offering without curation. And this is particular to the digital platform, but so many companies we now have, you know, access to, you know, information has become a commodity. We don't need a a corporate LMS to do this, but we all have access to this via via Google. And uh, a good friend, I think I can mention this one, has been dated enough, um, worked worked for for Crotonville um, and was in some of the early stages of GE's Crotonville, early stages of really uploading an amazing corporate library of digital assets with the idea that this was GE's own sort of uh, idea, um, something like a Skillsoft, that we're giving you access anytime, anywhere, people will love it. They quickly found out the memorable comment was anytime, anywhere became no time, nowhere, because it was a massive overload. And I think in this day and age of continuous, unrelenting change, um, leadership and learning and development leadership has to really embrace the curation and the guidance much more so than it is typically done. When you winnow things down to focus, you can start to get discussions in corporations around similar themes within different nodes in the corporation. Whereas if you just have wide open access, we're all overwhelmed with the daily jobs we do while we're in the pandemic trying to balance work life, it's really hard to do. So curation, leadership, and um, that that sort of playfulness that, that I mentioned in Google, I think those are key factors for building a learning culture. So I, and I'm going to refine this a tad bit because what I heard from you is it's not just leadership saying this is important. This is leadership willingness to show vulnerability about their own mm-hmm. mistakes, about their own missed assumptions, um, probably also about their own curiosity. And that, you know, we're talking a lot about vulnerability and humility, but that is without it, there's no learning. Because let's admit when I'm learning, I'm not particularly good at it. It's not going to go as smoothly as when I've mastered it. So, okay. And I think about organizations where the dominant style is the expert the person who knows everything and does everything. And that's going to be extremely hard for them to have any sense of experimentation when they get rewarded for being the experts. All right. So that was one, the leadership, but vulnerability in leadership. And the second one, I like the last thing you said, playfulness. 
And I love the notion at Google that it's pervasive playfulness, that there is a moment in time in which we've got a puzzle that we're all engaged in chatting about, talking about, you know, trying to win prizes on or whatever as a way of getting everybody thinking about some fun problems. Maybe it's relevant to a particular issue of the day. Maybe it's just thinking, learning something new. So I think that's that could be really interesting. It reminds me of um, data company, data-driven companies that are trying to get their companies to be more data-oriented. And rather than saying, where's the data for it? I'd love to have them post somewhere. What's the interpretation? Here's the graph. <laughs> What's the interpretation? Here's the data numbers. What's the interpretation to drive this kind of skills that we're looking for? All right. The thing that I want to spend the real time on, because it's a bit of a passion for me, is this notion of how overwhelmed we are and how much information is out there and how everybody I'm talking to in the last month, and I mean everybody, is so overloaded, they don't know which way to turn. And it's, it's just, it's the mood has taken a nosedive just because of the overwhelmed part. So I think that's important. And I know, you know, like I intend with the best of intentions, I sign up for a lovely app that's going to teach me to play guitar. And what have I done? You know, I keep paying the bill, but have I learned anything? It's that it's available anytime, anywhere. I think you're right. It's no time, nowhere. So how do we get, what are the tactics for, so curation is important, targeted is important, but how do I then get people really focused and doing it? Great question. Just just reflecting, Wanda, great question, because, um, you know, the pandemic threw all of our routines off. And if one of your routines, which mine used to be, is a lot of international travel, you know, there's it's, it, costs and benefits of everything. And, 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 and I didn't realize it. So basically from March through mid-September, I stayed home with my family, loved the time being with my family, but the four walls were starting to cave in. Um, my wife very smartly said, we're all remote. The, the kids, I have two college-age kids, are also remote. Let's take a, a week-long break. And, and we went up to upstate New York, Finger, Finger Lakes, and rented a place. And it was the most... Oh, mind-opening vacation I can remember having in in years because I think it did break that routine. So I think we 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 don't have as much sensory um, sensory input as we used to. Those of us who like change, who like exploring new things, yeah, we we can do a lot on Zoom. We can do a lot digitally, but it's a certain channel. It's a certain form of sensory input that I think is muting and limiting and. It can be amazingly efficient. So love it. I love the fact that, you know, this pandemic hit us in 2020, not in 2010 or even in 2000, particularly in 2000 would have been a disaster. We would have been back to telephone calls and fax machines. And at least in 2010, we would have, you know, the email, but we wouldn't have had true video conferencing. Um, So I I don't know, you know, my, my, my own personal approaches trying to get out as much as possible uh, doing bike rides walking in the woods if you happen to be in an area you can do that um but it's 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 our new condition and um you know out of the comfort zone from here this is well, well let me step back we 
there's, I think, too much talk about when we get to the new normal. I think that is a dated concept. And I hate to say it. I think we are in a current new normal right now. I think, you know, hopefully mid-2021, we will get to a point that will be a new transitionary new normal where enough of vaccine that is effective will be distributed that we will start to see the spring shoots of business as it used to be come back. But we're not going to go back to where we were. And I think our cycles of normality are going to get shorter and shorter without a future pandemic, just because of the digitization of the way we work, the way we interact. And it's exhausting. So I don't think I've answered your question at all, but it's given me a lot of things to reflect on, Wanda. So thank you. <laughs> I don't see a way out. There, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We just have to keep on running we towards. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. <laughs> or even if we're in the right tunnel, sometimes <laughs> I wonder about that. So, so one other comment. I really I want to give a um, a recognition to Wharton's new dean, Erica James, um, who, you know, is a is a change. Um, She's a, a relatively young African-American um, dean, the first at any Ivy League business school. And this humility, you know, talk about organizations where expertise and right answers is highly rewarded. No place more than an R1 research um, mm-hmm. university. And of course, vigorous debate because we're, we're intelligent right. enough to know that there is no one single answer that is universally right. correct in most things. But I've been so impressed with Dean James in her four months on the job so far of being able to come in and ask so many spot on questions without having the answers. And when asked, we'll be very honest and say, I don't know yet. And, 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 and that, that's a new form of leadership that is inspiring a lot of us at Wharton. And it's just something that, you, you know, it's wonderful to see in, in, in a leader. That willingness to ask questions and to sit with the unknown right, to not have the answer, to know that we may never have the answer, but then all we're going to do is explore it, seems to me to be at the heart of what it takes to create learning. Because if I feel like I have to jump immediately to solution or immediately to task, it's very difficult to learn. I'm going to default to doing what I've always done, because that's what I know. So it sounds like she is embodying what this sort of new style of leadership is really all about, you know, willingness to ask questions and not necessarily have the answers and be okay about that. She is. That's great. That's really cool. I need to talk to her. I'm excited about that one. Okay. Um, Three minutes here before we are going to take a break. And then, as you've rightly said, bring Steve Newman into the discussion. You know, I've been around this distance learning, online migration, university. I, you know, we've, I've, you and I both have seen this. I think this is my third time through this cycle. We've not done very well with it historically, trying to take learning into an online format. Um, so, what do you think is going to work this time? Thanks, Wanda. And, and yeah, I first met you when you were at Duke and you guys were way ahead of the game at the time. And, and thank you for leading the way. Um, well, you know, necessity being the mother of adaptation, I'll say this time, um, you, you know, the pandemic has certainly pushed us all to using this. And, and I can say, which is, this is the honest truth. Um, 
our average score right now on a five-point scale at Wharton Executive Education on average across the board is 4.58 in the live online synchronous delivery format versus a 4.67 when we were doing it face-to-face, which is, you know, margin of error difference. People are are appreciating it. Uh, But going back to your previous question, I think the question is Zoom fatigue, video fatigue, and the reality, those of us who are, you know, focus on learning. There's so many different modalities of learning that we're really cutting off a lot of those, but there's great experimentation going. So I guess my, 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 my answer is that what we're currently focusing on right now is a lot of plugins, a lot of add-ons to try to bring back the social engagement aspects of learning into the online platform. And it's exciting for me to work with a lot of innovative ed tech companies who have neat ideas. And I think what it's going to become is a toolkit of solutions that we're going to have to go with, not just one single, you know, Zoom is our answer to all education. That is not the answer. And it's going to be iterative experimentation that's going to make this better. Right. I think um, I think there's an opportunity at this moment to really rethink what uh, leadership development learning can look like. I wholeheartedly believe that. But we can't just make this the one-way communication that so many of our video conferencing platforms um, allow and permit. And uh, doing a poll or posting a question in chat is not creating that social interaction, that exchange of perspectives, which I believe is at the heart of learning. Because ultimately, it's about learning, exploring areas we don't know. So now we've got to find platforms or develop platforms or add in the capability of existing platforms to create that social exchange. If we can get that right, I think we have an opportunity to accelerate everybody's learning uh, without having to go back to we're all on planes and traveling and huge expense and time and so on. Okay. Mike, fascinating journey. I am excited to see what happens, but I think you're right. I think the three things that highlight for me from what you've said is leadership's mindset about willingness to be vulnerable, to ask the questions without having the answers necessarily, the playfulness and the ways in which we engage and get other people to creatively think about what to do like a weekly quiz, and curation, targeted, and social so with guidance, so that it's not anytime, anywhere, and therefore no time, nowhere. I love that expression. I'm going to let, let, let me you. just give credit where credit is due. Sylvain Newman, that quote is yep. from Sylvain Newman. It's wonderful. Oh, great. Okay. All right. Credit to Sylvain. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to take a break at this point. My guest is Mike Malafakis. He's currently the Associate Vice Dean at the Executive Education at Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania and a lifelong learner himself who's also worked with some of the world's leading executive education programs. When we come back, we're going to be joined by another special guest, Steve Newman, and I'll introduce him when we're back. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. 
Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today has been Mike Malafakis. We've been talking about creating a learning culture and what some of the best organizations do. Three points from that one that really stand out to me. Leadership that has a sense of humility, willing to ask questions without the answers. Um, Some playfulness and willingness to engage in creative, interesting ways to get everybody involved in thinking differently, trying to solve problems, or just generally learning. And then lastly is curated, guided, and social, all in one point. So what I wanted to at this point is to shift and talk about um, developing your own leadership in particular and focus not just learning in general, but around leadership. So we're joined now by Steve Newman, and Steve is a teacher, trainer, program director for executive development and an advisor in various learning companies. He's the co-founder or was the co-founder of the Future of Learning Forum at Columbia Business School. And he was the originator of the Magnet for Global Innovation Program in Silicon Valley. He's worked with young audiences in what's today the Rambert Dance, and he taught drama at Teachers College in Norway, just to say that Steve works not just in the corporate setting, but a broad uh, way from that. And Steve, more importantly, spent 15 years running executive developments for Ericsson. So um, I should say he's a native New Yorker, now lives in Paris, and I can attest to the fact that he is an avid walker through the biggest and most beautiful cities of the world, I might say. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. All right, so let's talk specifically about leadership development and whether that is somebody's own leadership development or it's the leadership of someone who works with me or it's the leadership development of the organization. So we've been talking about what makes learning effective. Now, what about leadership development? So Steve, to you, what do you think is most important in developing leadership, whether it's me, my team, or the organization? No, I I think for for leadership development, it it starts with the realization that um, it's not one thing. I mean, it's, uh, and, and I think today we can characterize it as learning how to do things, skills, which, you know, it, it certainly there was a lot of that and maybe only that uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Find a situation, figure out what that situation is, apply some skills and fix it and move on. Um, I think we then came to realize that the person doing that, the person fixing things um, is actually very important. It depends who it is. And so the individual, the, the values of that person, the purpose that that person brings to being a leader became vital. And I would say 
more recently, but perhaps even more importantly, um, it's the understanding of the importance of perspective. I mean, really, what is going on in the world that the organization um, is in? And I think good leadership development somehow is kind of combining those perspectives effectively. And um, I think that's what gives results. Okay. And I should say, um, Steve, you and I have talked about this whole notion of perspectives and the power of the curiosity, the looking out. And we've written about this one, looking out into the future where you don't know that the thing we're looking at is going to have any impact on my day-to-day business but it's just that general curiosity as a way of preparing for who knows what might come down the pipe. Um, And we've both seen organizations where that kind of an approach has led them to be more prepared for an unknown future that they couldn't see coming in one way or another. And that's what, I think that's what you're saying, Mm -hmm. but it also strikes me that the perspective is just as important as we think about inclusive cultures today and having different perspectives or an understanding of perspectives from different points of view. Is that what you mean as well? Absolutely. No, and I think that really is the heart of learning to kind of put your point of view that you come into the learning experience with up against other points of view and just kind of see what happens. And I think that the more you can get people to surface their points of view, their, their diversity, you know, what makes them who they are and where they get their ideas from, uh, the, the richer the learning experience. So there isn't, you know, you know, you used to learn whatever it is you were supposed to learn. Now you learn from everybody else and you change your point of view as, as you go along. And that can, be, that can be together with professors, like at the University of Pennsylvania, but it can also be with students. I mean, students are in the business of learning and you can learn a lot from them. Um, yeah. And from colleagues as well. This is reminding me of a show we just recently did with David White, um, who's a cognitive anthropologist and is applying that stuff to uh, corporations. And he looks at a thing he calls the predominant logic as a way of understanding the culture. Uh, this sounds esoteric, but hang with me for a minute because I think it's kind of at the core of what you just said. So a predominating logic might be, um, you know, I'm so busy, I feel like it's me against the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. That there's this, or, you know, we can't make a mistake at all cost, or, you know, we have to keep cost at an absolute minimum regardless of all else. That there's a predominant thought that exists throughout the culture and that that drives a lot of the behaviors and habits. So it hence what we see about the culture. But I think what you're saying, Steve, is that changing those perspectives is really ultimately about changing some of the recognizing and changing some of the predominant logic, being open to a different view. Is that reasonable summary? No, I would say so. <laughs> and, and I think it's a combination of looking in the mirror at yourself and looking out the window at everybody else and then back at the mirror. And, and you know, and some, something happens in that in that process. And it is facilitated by doing this with peers, you know, with people that you trust, with people who are opening up along with yourself. Um, And that's where an awful lot of learning takes place. Fabulous. All right, Mike, let me shift to you. What's your view about this? What does it take to do great leadership development, whether it's for me or for my team or for the organization? Based on what I've just heard you and Steve speak about, let me, let me, I I wasn't going to 
answer this way, but I think it's, it's important because we're in a critical era right now. And I'm recently reflecting on the U.S. election. You can go back to Brexit in the U.K., but the increased tribalization, the increased polarization. And there's two dynamics about leadership that are at play right now. And I feel as, you know, CEO and Associate Vice Dean at, at Wharton Executive Education, this tension of being real with people and yet keeping team spirit alive. And if you think about it, team spirit oftentimes in the past revolved around identifying in a few rigid ways about what we were on this team. And the most recent example of that in the U.S. was the Republican-Democrat um, complete split. The middle ground is gone. So the, 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 the real challenge for leadership development now is that dichotomy of motivating collective group identification without suffocating the, the, the heterogeneous, you know, value of different points of views of different life experiences. And, and I, I think this is one of the critical leadership challenges for 2020 and beyond because our world is getting increasingly tribal and leaders, whether you're a corporate leader or a political leader, need to bring the world back together and yeah, respect the amazing diversity that we have because that's what makes us stronger in the long run. Yeah. That's an interesting, I think we all see it. I think we all feel it, but it's so difficult to do. And from my point of view, watching leaders, working with leaders, coaching leaders, what I find is I may, we've all gotten reasonably good at understanding me, how I think, what I like, what my style is. You know, some are more articulate about it than others, but I sort of know most of the time, by the time I'm mid-career at least, a lot about me. And the assumption is that everybody else is similar, that if I use that same style to motivate, that will be what draws people in. Um, and it's applying that one stick or one carrot or one gold star broadly that kind of get you in trouble. So I love that you said it's about how do we create the collective identity so that we feel we're a part of a thing without suffocating the individual points of view, perspective, and individual differences. That's a tight rope of attention. So have you seen anybody do that well? Do you have any examples? Sorry for laughing, but but at this this moment in time, I can't think of one <laughs> single individual who's done that yet. But there's still hope. <laughs> yeah, I have. I mean, I um, uh, Castanadas wrote in 2000 um, a book called The Power of Identity, and the single idea in that book that still sticks with me 20 years later is that creating a common enemy is the fastest mm -hmm. way to create group identity. But that also just breeds tribalism all over yes. again. Like it doesn't help. And we've seen that play out in 20 years over, you know, all the different major decisions that have happened. So I don't recommend that as a strategy, but finding um, a sense of purpose, a goal, a customer, a something. And 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 and, 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 and want to note seriously one one thing I have seen in 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 a, a few corporations, there is always the undisputed and there has to be in corporate leadership undisputed you know head who will make the final decision but you know leaders who are comfortable allowing deputies to really rise up and take on strategic projects as the ceo of this 
corporate-wide strategic project versus the leader who has to put their stamp of approval on everything and has to be the spokesperson or, or forward-facing face of that when we know that behind the scenes it's everybody else who is doing that. And, and again, going back to your, your, your point about, I don't think this is necessarily vulnerability, but comfort with your leadership team that you can truly entrust deputies to carry forth strategic initiatives and give them all the support from behind not leading the way is critical. All right, but there's an important point. I'll let you jump in, Stephen, just a minute. There's an important point about that, Mike, which is most leaders will trust their team if the team is a lot Mm -hmm. like them. Like they have the same standards, the same objectives, the same point of view, the same, 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 same. And therein becomes a problem, right? Steve, you want to jump in. So go for it. Well, I just, yeah, you go back to the, the leadership de- development part of this. If you're looking for heterogeneity, it is outside the classroom. It is outside the organization. Um, it's all over the place. I mean, I, I had the pleasure of looking at Philadelphia over the weekend when the election was coming down, you know, and I thought, my God, I'd really like to be there and talk to those people. I mean, I, I hadn't been in that part of Philadelphia when I, when I went there and seen what was going on. I think there would be an awful lot to learn. I, and I think part of the leadership development, if you can take that time and you're outside the company um, and you really want to see how broad the world is and how much diversity there is, go out and find it and talk about it. And I think that makes the conversations inside the company much richer. Steve, I think you're talking about to the news media that we all saw, I am assuming around the world, most of us saw where there is a Republican group on one side and a Democratic group on the other side of the street, and they're cheering or bemoaning or whatever it is, different things at the exact same moment in time. And right there is the diversity that's clear and present. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Motivate the collective. The collective identity, we're part of something, we belong to something without suffocating the individual difference. That is the second phrase of the day. All right. Um, So what's effective? I mean, Steve, you've just talked about going out into the world, but I can go out in the world and think I've seen differences, but not actually really seen it. And that's, I encounter some of that's just flat out uncomfortable. I I think you can design experiences where people go out in the world with, with you know, very specific goals um, to kind of see what's going on with the intention of being able to talk about it. I mean, simply walking around by yourself can be useful for reflection, but I do think experiences must be designed and they must be somewhat challenging. I think you do have to take people out of their comfort zone and send them back into their comfort zone and have conversations about it. But, they, you know, they, this is... This is a lot of work. It's not just a long break. Um, there are there are objectives behind this, and there are ways to do it. All right. Now, you've been part of running that kind of different perspective, particularly around talking about terrorism and the role of terrorism. Can you talk about what you've done, what you did with a group of people, a group of leaders? Yeah, I mean that, that's one example. But I and I we just I, I just stumbled into that one. But I had a group in London, um, and uh, we were looking for world issues in London. You know, how could we experience the whole world right in London, which is probably as good a city anywhere to experience the world. So we looked at child poverty. There's plenty of it in London and there's plenty of it everywhere else. We, lo- we looked at environmental issues and we were looking at uh, terrorism. 
So I found an organization willing to host us um, to talk about what they were doing with anti-terrorist programs. And th this was a building, no name on the door, uh, no address, no numbers, and I actually know where it is, but, you know, um, go in there and, uh, you know, talking to us were four ex-terrorists, I mean, really serious guys uh, from Libya. And I had a group of people and we were listening to these guys and they were trying to help the UK government and the prison system uh, combat terrorism. And they had, a, they had a real mission. They're very passionate about what they're doing. Anyway, we learned an awful lot. And then we had the discussion, okay, what, what did we learn or what do we think about this? And go back to Mike's point, I thought the group was really together, very homogeneous. Well, when we had that discussion, that's when you saw the heterogeneity because some people thought that these guys from Libya were lying that they were still terrorists, that they were really dangerous, that you shouldn't fall for all that stuff. And the other people thought, no, we really learned a lot now and they're really terrific. That is what, you know, kind of broke the group apart, but actually brought them together because we realized that people had different points of view. And that depended on where you came from and what experience you had, all, all sorts of things. And the reason why you had the point of view, that became the, sub the most important uh, subject of discussion. So what is it that's driving that point of view? What's the experience that I have had that leads me to this conclusion? You know, and how certain are you also? I mean, that's kind of a third dimension. Yeah. You know, they're terrorists, they're not terrorists, but I'm not sure. Yeah. That's interesting as well. If I think back on my own personal learning and development, sort of my own growth, um, there are an awful lot of occasions, I won't say everyone, but an awful lot of occasions where it's clear I had an assumption that I felt pretty strongly about, and often an assumption about someone else, motive, drive, behavior, et cetera, even background experience, and was dead wrong, like just flat out dead wrong. And just being open to hearing that other perspective is, boy, that challenges you, first off, it's a mistake, but it's also a challenge for understanding the broader people that I interact with in any organization. Mike, what do you think? What's your perspective? We're here. We are trying to talk about how do we make really highly effective leadership. And if you were giving somebody advice for choosing where to spend my time in developing my leadership, where would you send them? What would you tell them to look for? Well, of course, Wharton Executive Education, as well yeah, as right. um, <laughs> many, many other. No, no, I, 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 I love Steve's example of, of you know, engaging with somebody who has such a radical different viewpoint than you. And, and, and again, that's a great example of somebody leading that, curating that, that, um, but seeking out people who have different points of view and, and you're right, Wanda, many of us naturally, one of the reasons Steve and I love talking with each other, bouncing ideas of, of each other is more or less, we have similar points of view about curiosity we're comfortable with ambiguity. We, 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 we know there is no definitive answer immediately. And one of the things, as somebody who's naturally tends to be that way, I really had to learn to uh, slow down a little bit and work with people who want the right answer, who are looking for security, who are not the risk embracers. And how do you make that work? So 
I think it comes first with that self-identification of what your tendencies are. One is, as, as you said, we sort of get that by mid-career, but then very deliberately through the help of a coach or your own discipline to seek time with people who have very different points of view and, and spend time to understand their perspective. That's the way you can self-educate, auto-dictate uh, yourself to become a much more holistic and all-encompassing leader who actually understands various different points of view. You'll still push forward for that risky mission, but you'll understand all the roadblocks and the implementation of that from the team members that aren't that comfortable with it. Right, right. So that strikes me then if I'm choosing to join a leadership development program activity, that one of the things that I want to be doing is looking at who else is attending. And seeking out actively the peers that are attending that who have different experiences and trying to build that connection with them and understand their perspective, both of what we're talking about as well as what's going on in the company or going on in the world, that that should be one of the goals. In fact, I would argue maybe one of the primary goals of a leadership development program. Okay, um, we are just about out of time. So let me see if I can wrap up what is a very interesting, far-ranging conversation here. And I think that there are three things I want to say. Number one, great learning comes with vulnerability from the leaders. I don't have all the answers. A bit of playfulness and curiosity in ways of engaging everybody and something new that different, maybe on point, maybe not on point, And then the last one is curated, guided, and social. So that's the first bit that I want to say. The second bit is anytime, anywhere means no time, nowhere. So if it's not guided in some direction, then it just sort of sits languishing. Thank you, Sylvain, for saying that one. And then the last one is this really the job, the ultimate job of a leader today is to motivate the collective identity with the team without suffocating the different points of views and perspectives and styles that exist in the individuals in the team. Pretty powerful statements. So Mike Malafakis, who is CEO and Associate Vice Dean at the Oresti Institute of Executive Education at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Man, is that a mouthful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Wanda. Steve Newman, who's a teacher, trainer, program director, executive development, and advisor on learning and companies. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you, Mike. And join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to know more about how to apply learning or develop your own leadership, join us on our brand new subscription service at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. See you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.